Well, good morning again. Good morning again. Anybody? Oh, there we go. Come on, it's a gray morning. We got to keep ourselves awake. Uh, we are in this series in Daniel, and you might remember last week if you were here or are familiar with Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has had a dream, and he, imagine, he sees this image, this statue. Of course, the kingdom of God topples the statue and grows into it, but uh, the statue was divided into different um, metals and different materials that made it up, and the top of that was a gold head, which he's told is about him and, uh, and the Babylonians. You might want to remember that as we get into the very next chapter uh, and start into chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, for the sake of time, we're going to skip ahead a little bit, but he gathers them together, has a concert, everybody's supposed to worship, and, uh, and some of the Jews, in particular Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's friends, uh, it's noted that they are not worshiping. And so we pick up in verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship that golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. 
and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over, their bo- over the bodies of those men. Their, he- <clears throat> excuse me. their hair on their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, God gives this word to us so we can understand him and know what he calls on us to do. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you speak to us through your word, that it is through your word that your spirit makes plain what it is that you would have for us. So we pray that you would speak to us by your spirit, that we would understand the work of Jesus more clearly, that we would understand what he has accomplished and what he is accomplishing in us by that spirit. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we don't, this, this story might sound a little weird. It's hard to relate to. We don't have a lot of statues around that people worship anymore. Uh, or so we think. <laughs> uh, we don't have idols in that, in that tangible way much anymore. Although, I mean, what were idols, right? But things that we give our attention and energy to that stand for something that gives us meaning and purpose. And in that regard, idolatry never goes out of style. Because there are always things that we do to give ourselves meaning and purpose. There are things we devote our energy and attention to that we believe will return on investment. And, you know, we may not be polytheistic in that same way (laughs) that uh, Nebuchadnezzar clearly is, But we do live in a pluralist age, an age in which we are in many ways very closely uh, encouraged to pursue God in a whole host of different ways. It's worth stopping and thinking then what this teaches us about what it means to worship other gods and what it means to worship the true God. And we'll see that the idols even of our own age, uh, first present a threat, then a temptation, and then a failure. A threat, a temptation, and a failure. The threat is obvious enough, right? Nebuchadnezzar, as we were saying, had this vision in chapter 2 about the statue. The statue gets destroyed in in the vision, but the thing that he takes away from it is, that's a good-looking statue. Because the next thing he does, 
I mean, we don't know how much time elapses, but, you know, narratively, we're obviously supposed to connect the dots here. He's thinking about this gold statue. It's not just going to be the head. The whole thing will be gold, right? And it's probably an image of him. We're not told that explicitly, but boy, these ancient Near Eastern kings really like to make images of themselves. You can go to any number of major museums and see how much they love that kind of thing. So, uh, it could be another god, but of course, they were considered gods too. So, uh, it's probably an image of him. And it's 60 cubits, which is about 90 feet tall. I mean, think about that for a minute. That's like a 10-story building. It must just completely dominate the terrain of this plain. You know, like, I, there's probably like, I don't know, farms and maybe some small villages on this plain. It, it just, just enormous. The scale of it would look enormous in Charleston. It, it is, it's just kind of mind-blowing how big this thing is that he wants, that he has built, you know, this image to himself. Uh, it's a vanity project. And part of what we skipped in the, the, the section that we skipped over is you hear repeated over and over again all these officials that get called up. And you hear repeated over and over again, and you heard a little bit of of this and, and what we did read, of all these instruments that they play. And the whole point of this, like, really overwrought repetition <laughs> seems to be to make the point that this is his vanity project, that this is what, this is what Nebuchadnezzar really wanted to do for himself. Uh, no wonder he's mad when he finds out that some people are blowing it off, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in particular are not interested in bowing down and worshiping this idol. Uh, he's furious. Now, it's worth getting inside of Nebuchadnezzar's head for a little bit here. Nebuchadnezzar is what we call polytheist, right? You might be familiar with those terms. Polytheist meaning many gods, right? Monotheist means one god, which uh, seems simple enough. But, you know, polytheism thought of itself. In the ancient world, polytheists thought of themselves as being really understanding and really generous. After all, that way of thinking recognizes, hey, there could be more out there. So, we can always welcome in more gods. You can always… and you can be flexible too. I mean, maybe most of the time you worship… yeah, well, in his case, you know, maybe Marduk… <laughs> right? But there could be, you could, you could worship Nebo as well. You could worship these other gods that they had. Uh, we're pretty, you might be more familiar with this with like, with Greek and Greco-Roman worship, right? That, you know, a city like Athens, Athena was the center of attention, but they worshiped other gods too. And you could be flexible, right? You might give most of your time and energy to one particular god, but there's others out there too. So, it was, on the one hand, it was accommodating, And it gave you a lot of flexibility. Again, maybe you worship this one God, but man, if you really need to get something done with <laughs> gods that were associated with that, you could go worship them. And so, from his vantage point, right, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to worship this image, they are breaking the unwritten rules. 
they are challenging Him. He gives them the right to worship their God. Who do they think they are refusing to worship His or Himself, if it's, if it's an image of Him? Right? Who are they to do that? You see the difference, right? Um, it's strangely, strangely enough, polytheism, of course, went out of style for a long time. But what has come back around is pluralism, which is in many ways much like polytheism. Now, it's, of course, a little different because we've gone through an era in which the great monotheistic religions arose. And, of course, it's recognizing that there's a way of talking about the transcendent that particularly some Eastern religions don't call God or a God. And it's trying to navigate all of those sorts of uh, issues. And yet, and yet, it is committed to the idea, right, that there's just no, there's no one right way. Now, you don't have to be… Now, you can be a kind of full-blown pluralist, uh, where you really are saying every religion can be that, or you can simply be the kind of uh, person that, well, you're just finding what works for you. I mean, it is the strange kind of spiritual world that we live in now where uh, it is kind of a choose-your-own-adventure situation. Well, the issue, of course is not just the question of the number of gods. Uh, Richard Dawkins, a famous atheist, um, <laughs> simply said, he said, we, he said, we're all atheists about most of the gods that humanity has ever believed in. Some of us just go one god further, as if it's an issue of the number. But the difference between what the way that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego see the world and the way that Nebuchadnezzar sees the world is not a matter of just how many gods you count. It's fundamentally a different thing. One theologian puts it this way. He says, when we start to talk about God as the one only God, uh, God so understood is neither some particular thing imposed over against the created universe, nor is He the universe itself. He is not a being, at least not in the way that, th- that there is a tree, a clock, or even a one of the gods. He is not one more object in the inventory of things that are there. He is the infinite wellspring of all that is, in whom all things live and move and have their being. By contrast, to speak of gods, little g, <laughs> is to speak only of a higher or more powerful or more splendid dimension of an imminent reality. Any gods that might be out there do not transcend nature but belong to it. You see, the, the difficulty that polytheism had was it could not really distinguish the gods from just the order of the way the world is. But to speak of the one true and living God who is the Creator is to speak of the one who is above creation, outside of it, and yet the one in, in whom we live and move and have our being. What Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get 
is that distinction. And that's the distinction we're tempted away from over and over again as we are tempted into thinking, well, there's just multiple ways up the same mountain, is to deny the prerogative of God to actually describe Himself. You see, the answer, the question is not whether there is beauty in other religions. I think that there can be at times. It's not to say that Christians in particular shouldn't love our religious neighbors. You know, the funniest thing is when Jesus tells the story, or when Jesus answers the question about what is the greatest commandment, He says the greatest is to love your neighbor, or to love the Lord your God, and to love your neighbor as yourself is the second great one. And then in, in Luke, one of, the, one of the scribes asks him, well, who is my neighbor? And he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, who, of course, did not worship God, at least not the way the Old Testament calls them to. No, I mean, we're still supposed to love our religious neighbors, but the thing we're encouraged to do is to actually ask hard questions about it. And you see, that's the problem with our kind of pluralist age, is that it is comfortable until we actually start to take the issues of life and death, of meaning and purpose, of transcendence and existence, (laughs) seriously, as if those are real questions with real stakes that need real answers. Pluralism is not exactly polytheism revisited. It is similar to it, but takes the whole transcendent thing much less seriously. We are really saying then that all that really matters is the life we're living right now and getting what we want out of it. See, the threat of these kinds of idols is they, they perpetuate an existence that has no meaning, no purpose. And that really is where that kind of pluralism ends up leaving us. But there is a temptation to it. We've already started to touch on it, and it shows up in this passage. You see, Nebuchadnezzar, because he's thinking polytheistically, is thinking, well, all you've got to do… This is actually what he says to them in, uh, in verse 15, right? They, they get called before him, and he says, okay, look, you messed up, but now if you're ready, when, the mu- when they strike up the music, all you got to do is bow down, and we'll consider, consider this matter, matter settled, you know, we're, end of it. End of story. That's all you got to do. It's curious how often that has happened in, uh, in Christian history. The Romans used to do this. All, all you got to do is offer… You can still call yourself a Christian. You can still talk about your stuff. All you got to do is offer a little incense to the goddess Roma, and it'll all be fine. All you got to do is this little thing and it'll be fine. But if you refuse to do that, you're undermining 
what we're about. And notice this, that he's thinking, because he ends his speech by saying at the end of verse 15, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? He is thinking about the situation they already found themselves in because it was their God, at least as he thinks of it, who already delivered them into his hands. There's a pragmatic streak in polytheism that's really important to understand. The practical side of polytheism is that it's about worshiping a God that works. And either their God had already abandoned them to him, when he took over Jerusalem, or his gods were just more powerful. Either way, (laughs) he was going to deliver them. He doesn't have any category for their exile, and yet God's covenant faithfulness despite that. He has no category for that. He is thinking, well, what God works? What God helps you accomplish the things that you're trying to accomplish, which is why he can turn around when they're delivered out of the fire and be like, oh, yeah, and so, you know, nobody should badmouth this guy, their God, because it's proven that he works, right? And that's, what, that's how he's thinking. This is not a conversion moment, you know, for, for Nebuchadnezzar. He's not like suddenly come around to believing in the one true living God. No, he's still interpreting it within his polytheistic mindset. By the way, the next chapter will make that clear that he hasn't changed his mind about any of that. He's he's still interpreting it that way. That's why it's the God of these guys. Because he works. Because he's the God that can deliver you out of fire. Out of trouble. He's looking for a God that works. And see, that's the temptation uh, of polytheism. It's also the temptation within pluralism is this pragmatic streak, right? It's because what we're really saying, and this is what you hear when people talk about their spirituality, I hate to say it, you hear it a lot in the church just as much as anywhere else, is like, well, I do this because this really works for me. I'm into this because it really works for me. And what do we mean when we say that? We mean that we get something out of it, right? We came looking for something, and we feel like we're getting it back. I mean, maybe, maybe that's a, a sense of being uh, of well-being. Maybe our maybe our emotional health. Maybe it is a way of pursuing relationships. Maybe it is a way of expanding your wealth. Maybe it is zealous partisanship and the sweet, sweet taste of convincing ourselves that we're right all the time and those other people are idiots. whatever works, right? That's the great temptation. That, that's, that's how Nebuchadnezzar thinks. That's how most people thought in the ancient world. And that is still our language. That is still the modern pluralistic language is that, well, what, I, I do what works for me. 
without asking the question of what it is we value. Now, I mean, to be fair, the leading voices in pluralism would actually affirm this. I mean, uh, so there, Diana Eck, who's a professor at Harvard and one of the leading voices in her book, Encountering God, actually makes this point, right, that this is what will happen in pluralism is that you will start to engage people in their deepest commitments. And she uses the illustration of Gandhi. Uh, and she says, Gandhi had one clear guiding value, uh, one foundational criteria, ahimsa, nonviolence. It was not a doctrine or a belief. It was something he held to because he felt it was divinely revealed. Now, and she, she makes the point that not everybody's always going to agree. Well, then let's be honest. We are considering ourselves the arbiters then of what's really worthwhile. And that is, again, to say that really at the root is a question of what we think works for what we want. But the problem is, what if it doesn't work? Or what if it seems to work for a while and then it stops working? I mean, why do people have midlife crises? Because you invested in things for a while, for a long time, that seemed like they were paying off, and then they stop feeling like they're paying off. Because we're not good at actually assessing what's worth our time and what is actually working and what is actually giving us what we need. We're terrible at it. We have more than anybody's ever had in human history, and we're less happy than most people have ever been in human history. I mean, that's not a great mystery. We're terrible at assessing what really works for us. We're horrible at it. It, We might be decent at assessing what makes me feel good right this second. But whether that is actually worthwhile or wise or helpful in the long run, we're usually pretty bad at assessing. And more to the point, even if even if we're pretty convinced and have been convinced for a long time that we are pursuing something that is worthwhile, why should anyone else care? And if it's a project that needs other people to get involved with it, how can we possibly convince them that they should get involved with it? The answer is the temptation to our, is, of pluralism is that we get what we want. We get to pursue what works. The problem is it's a devil's bargain. Because we are not so nearly so wise as we think we are. And we have very little hope of being able to convince others that they ought to pursue the same thing. It's tempting, but it's terrible. And so we get to the failure of our idols. In verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are dragged before the king. He's just told them, you know, you can bow down, it'll all be done with, but if you don't, who is this God? And they say, well, look, Nebuchadnezzar, our God will deliver us. 
Your fire is not a problem for him. (laughs) All your rage is not a problem for him. But notice this. Notice this. Verse 18. But if not. But even if he doesn't deliver us, (laughs) we will not worship your gods. We will not bow down to that image. Isn't that interesting? We know what we want God to do. And we're confident that He has the power to do. But even if He doesn't do exactly what we want, we're still not bound down. You see, they've stopped buying into the pragmatic logic of just getting what we want. Because, of course, if they wanted that, if they just wanted an easier out, they would just bow down. But they know that that is not the way God works, for there are better things that God has for them than to simply get out of a tight spot, than even to be honored by the king. There are better things than that. Well, the king's rage, of course, is out of control. Literally, I mean, the giant furnace is out of control. (laughs) His own men die trying to throw these guys in the fire. Uh, And isn't it weird the way God responds, right? He doesn't intervene before they get thrown in the fire. He doesn't show up in, you know, some great display to challenge Nebuchadnezzar for his arrogance, he shows up in the fire. Because this is what Nebuchadnezzar sees, right? He sees that there's somebody else in there with him, one who looks like a son of the gods, meaning there must be something radiant about his appearance that stands out. It's not just somehow a fourth guy got snuck in there, right? This guy looks different. And even though later he calls him a uh, angel, uh, that word just means messenger in Hebrew. It means that, that Nebuchadnezzar in his categories doesn't really have a category for what he just saw. And that's about as good as he's got. He doesn't assume that the God shows up that way. But listen, We've already talked about why these gods are failures, because there's no possible way that we can assess what actually works for us with any sort of confidence, anyway. But notice this, obedience to God circumvents the question of what will get me what I want right now. And that's one of the hardest things about obedience. It really is. I think this is one of the great challenges of actually living how God calls you to to live is because the immediate outcome will not always be obvious. You might have an educated guess at how others are going to respond. You might have a pretty good idea. 
You might be pretty confident that they'll respond well. You might be pretty confident that they're not going to respond well. But we don't really know. We don't know what will drive them. And we're scared. I mean, it really is, at one level, just that simple. We want other outcomes. We want predictable outcomes. And it's not clear that we'll get what we want in the short run. But this is why Christian obedience is different. This is why obedience to the one true living God is different. Because that God doesn't do what is convenient. That just like He showed up in the fire, He shows up in the flesh. Because our confidence in God is not based merely in what we have heard about what has happened in the past. Merely in His promises, it is in the guarantee of what Jesus has accomplished, who died and rose from the dead, who even now lives and reigns. Our confidence is in the God who, in fulfilling His promises, entered into this fallen world that we've messed up, who entered in and took on our nature, who entered in and endured temptations, who endured suffering, who endured the very worst of what we had, who took on Himself the condemnation of sin, and who was raised from the dead. This is not a pragmatic God who just does whatever seems like the easiest thing to do. This is the God who came to fix the problem fully and finally at the cost of His own Son. That is our confidence, is that He will not forget, that everything that He really promises, He will not fail to deliver because everything is delivered in Jesus. And what He promises is not that my obedience will produce immediate, tangible results today, that your obedience will not produce all the things that you have on your Christmas list, that it will not produce the favor of the King, that your obedience will not give you health and wealth. Rather, your obedience grows in you that very character of God. Obedience is sacrificial. There is no other kind of obedience. It is enjoying the privilege of becoming like Jesus Himself. Giving up what might seem like a good solution, on our terms anyway. Now, I'm not saying that doesn't mean God won't sometimes <laughs> give you the good things. But it is to say that ultimately what He means to do is give you the best thing, to bring you into His presence, 
And not only that, to bring you into His presence as one who has changed, who has actually learned to appreciate the character of God Himself. Because you become like His Son by obeying even when it costs you. So that we're lost in wonder, love, and praise. I mean, the good life in the Bible is defined really not by the immediate outcomes at all, ever, but by the final outcome of enjoying God's presence and of becoming like Him. I mean, in Acts 5, the apostles are arrested. They're preaching about Jesus. This is still pretty early in Acts. Uh, They're arrested for teaching Him. The Jewish Sanhedrin drags them before them. And we're told this, that when they're sent back out and told not to preach anymore, it says that they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. Rejoicing that they (laughs) were counted worthy to suffer? I mean, that really defies our logic. Unless, of course, the best thing in life would be to become like Jesus. To grow in our understanding and appreciation of Him and to grow into His character. Then, of course, you would understand why the early church thought of martyrs as those who had really lived life well. I'm not saying we can't fall into the trap of having a martyr complex. Of course. I mean, there, there are times where the church starts to take a self-pitying stance. Certainly, there's plenty of churches in America that kind of slip into that way of thinking. I'm not talking about that. I am talking about learning to be sacrificial, come what may, in terms of other people's attitude towards us, in terms of the immediate outcomes of it. Again, that will be variable, (laughs) person to person. That will be variable situation to situation. But this involves laying aside the fear of rejection because we recognize that, look, our pluralistic society is fickle. And I can't operate with fear that others might reject me, but operate with the delight to learn the character of Jesus Himself. This is about laying aside our calculations, forgetting the things that we want, and recognizing that there is really nothing better, nothing greater than the love of God. See, we're not being told to think of ourselves as better. We're told to think of the riches of God as being better than anything we could possibly attain. This is why Peter, uh, in, uh, in his first epistle, opens it by saying this, and we'll end with Peter's words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the privilege of knowing You. We thank You for the privilege of getting to actually obey sacrificially. And Lord, though we don't want trials to come, and we don't pray for any trials to come, yet we know that obedience to You will not infrequently put us at odds with others. Lord, we pray that our delight would not be in the fight, but would be in You. That we would delight that we get to learn the character of Jesus firsthand, because that is the character of Your love for us. And so obedience, even obedience that is costly, can still be a source of joy. Lord, we pray that You would teach us to be that kind of obedient, not for our sake, but for Yours. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.